Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Evangelicals have been hijacked by the political right. Yeah, our doctrinal statements have been somehow rewritten with hate the poor, leave the disenfranchised out of the country, <laughs> marginalize anybody who doesn't look like us, and definitely don't love, because that would be weak. I mean, where is any of that written in the Bible? And it drives me crazy. Shattered pieces Like a spider's web All tangled up The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, or if you have connected with it, or it's resonated somewhere with you, consider making a donation. Even the smallest donations go to help John and I maintain healthy relationships with our wives and keeps their blood pressure at a healthy level. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. Made of blue and red, bleed into one. Welcome, everybody, to the Deconstructionists podcast. We're your hosts. (laughs) I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. And oh my, just tell tell them what we got, John. Oh man, Uh, we got some science for you. This is our first official scientist on the podcast. No, no, No offense to Scientific Michael. Oh well, yeah, yes. But he knows. Yeah, yeah. This is our first phd <laughs> like career scientist yeah yes. yeah uh she is a uh, a doctor in uh atmospheric science uh, at the university of texas tech and political science which is interesting it's a very interesting combination well, who, who is it first of all oh yeah i should probably tell people <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you record late. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's raw. It, people have no idea. We have to work around schedules of not only our families, but the families of the people we have on. And yeah. so we're working around kids and bedtimes. And <laughs> it's great. Oh, man. So, yeah. So, and, and we're excited because we it just, was a great interview. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> who, who is this wonderful young lady we just spoke with? It is Catherine Hayhoe. And uh, she is absolutely brilliant and just has this just sparkling personality oh that just comes gosh. through. Yes. 
And I mean, she's she's just brilliant. Like I said, she's got over 120 peer-reviewed papers, abstracts, and and other publications. That's a lot. Um, it's a few gonna, more than you you yeah. have, I think, isn't it? Uh, just a few. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly more than John plus you has published. Does she count the one time I blog blogged? <laughs> no one read it. And your your your, your high school papers don't don't, <laughs> right. don't count. Oh man! But she's got a book out that she co-wrote with her husband. Uh, she's been featured on on the uh, Showtime documentary "Years of Living Dangerously," where she was actually interviewed by Don Cheadle. Hanging with Cheadle. Um, she was featured uh, on the list of 50 women to watch in Christianity today and also featured on Time Magazine's uh, 100 Most Influential People a couple years ago. That's the second person that we've had that's one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. I know. I'd like to collect all 100, wouldn't you? Let's get going. <laughs> Let's make some hay, man. Get get on the phone. Uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of Let's that. Let's start making some calls. Yeah. <laughs> man, was that fun, though. She is... Uh, I felt, obviously, as people notice when the interview starts to play, <laughs> I felt right at home <laughs> because she is a very gregarious, enthusiastic, positive optimist, uh, probably a seven on that old Enneagram. Uh, I felt very at home. But what uh, she's climate change. She's all about climate change and everything around that. And I think one of the things that's great about, obviously, we love to have anyone on this podcast that will create some disruption in our worldviews, yeah. whatever that is. what All of these things all go together anyway, so it's very convenient to have labels of just, you know, philosophy, science, theology, religion, blah, 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 blah. They all go together. Mm-hmm. And this topic in particular, I felt like was this, like, it's so obvious they all go together when you're talking about climate change. And the way she talks about it is a perfect topic for the Deconstructions podcast because, let's get honest, not everybody's on board with this. Right. Like who's the who's the one population that is so far from on board, even with the insurmountable evidence toward climate change? Who is it? <laughs> evangelicals. Evangelicals. Come on, evangelicals. Come on, guys. You can do it. We believe in you. <laughs> um, man, she's just so gracious, though, um, in talking about all of this science and um, knowing just how concrete and practical. It is. These aren't, you know, it's one thing when you're talking about astrophysics and you're talking about gravity waves and you're talking about black holes and you're talking about, you know, uh, the Big Bang and you're talking about all these kinds of things and it's like easy to geek out and, you know, neutrino stars and quarks and, you know, all those kinds of things. It's easy to geek out and have fun. When you start talking about the car you drive, when you start talking about the fuel you burn, when you start talking about your shopping habits and how the fashion industry works and eating red meat and all these really practical things that are tied to some really spectacular science, observable, measurable, like I love what she says, a thermometer doesn't lie. <laughs> right, right. You know, it, no matter what way you slice it, a thermometer doesn't lie. So what, a, what an apt thing for our little show here. Yeah, yeah, I, I think... Um, I think she brings this really interesting, unique perspective where she's successfully been able to marry the, you know, the two things together, you know, mm. science and faith. And not only has she been able to do it, but her dad modeled that for her, which I thought was really, really interesting. We went went into um, a little bit of her background. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think her answer um, 
and I'd heard her say it before about the roles of faith and the role of of science. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought that was a really poignant moment, and I really like her answer there. I yeah. thought that was really interesting. Oh, people are going to really like that. I think that she in one thing that surprised me because I was expecting this almost like this crusader to like reconcile science and religion and you know, all <laughs> these kinds of things. And what you got was somebody that's like, duh, like what do you mean it? It's easy. She made it look effortless. Like yeah. it wasn't even a problem at all. Yeah. And we're not talking about somebody who's twisting the scientific facts to fit. Um, I mean, she was talking about the Big Bang. She was talking about billions of years. She was talking about, you know, the, the scientific processes that measure climate change that people want to a lot of times turn a blind eye to, especially if they're in the religious right. Yeah. evangelical right. And she did it with this integrity and this honesty where she's doing her best to look at everything while being true to her convictions, her heart and her mind. It was it, It's absolutely wonderful. We shouldn't talk anymore. We should just roll yeah. tape on this thing, don't you think? Is there anything else? Man, I just, it, when we joked about, I think a couple episodes ago about the, uh, the summer of power women. Oh my gosh. We weren't kidding. We didn't know how not kidding we were. Yeah. Strap your helmet on. This one's going to be good. Good gravy Marie. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. What a blast. So without further ado, we have the first scientist to come on the Deconstructionist podcast, Catherine Freegan. Hey, hey ho. Man. I used to live like I was a prisoner in chains Confined by my own design Defined by things I could not change Alright, well, uh, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Oh, are you talking to me? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was the best intro ever. That was awesome. <laughs> we don't edit any of this stuff, too, so that's going to be really funny. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, gr- that's great. Uh, so so one of the questions we like to start off with, um, just so the, the people listening can get to know our guests a little bit, um, are just kind of uh, a little bit about your background. And I think um, the uh, the audience is going to be really interested in, in kind of your upbringing. Um, I know a little bit about your history, uh, just a tiny bit. And I know that um, your dad was also both a scientist and a religious man. And um, obviously, that that had some influence on your upbringing. So, if you could just share with us a little bit about how you were raised, what what your household was kind of like, and and how that influenced uh, the work that you are involved in now. Sure. So, you know, science is not always a girl thing. Where there's all these programs called, you know, science is a girl thing that people are supposed to be sending their daughters to these days. But I was really fortunate because I grew up in a household where I have three sisters. My dad has six sisters. And oh. yeah, that is my dad used to joke that the only male in the house was the cat. And so, <laughs> but my dad loves science. He just loves trying to figure out how things work. And his perspective very much is that when we're studying science, when we're trying to figure out how the world works, how the universe works, we're basically trying to figure out what God was thinking when he put the whole thing together in the first place. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It was, so it was a great perspective to grow up with. And it was one that really integrated the whole idea of science and faith. I had no idea that people thought science and faith were in opposition and were fighting with each other until, you know, I forget how old I was. I was, you know, way down the road by the time I figured that out. Because growing up with my dad, both being a teaching elder in our local church, as well as being a science teacher, 
I just had the idea that, you know, the Bible is God's written word and nature is God's expressed word. And we can learn about God equally from both of them. Yeah, oh, wow. Great. That's yeah, wonderful. A refreshing perspective, to say the least. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I would say nowadays, I would take it even further. I'd say, if we really truly believe that God created the world, then why would we think it's going to tell us anything different? Right? Oh, wow. Right. Yes. Yes. So then why the resistance um, from so many people within, you know, we had a great conversation with a, a pastor from Minnesota, which isn't too far from Canada. So maybe you know him. Uh, <laughs> Greg Boyd um, talks about just, he, he talks a lot about the anti-intellectualism, specifically in evangelicalism. Um, do you have any thoughts on why that might be? I, it sounds like you are a little bit protected from that, but it sounds like you might also have some thoughts on it. I, yes, I definitely do. And it sounds like I should listen to his podcast too. So <laughs> what, what we have to realize is that there's a lot of these kind of phenomena that are quite unique to the United States. So yeah. even though Minnesota is close to Canada, even though Ohio is close to Canada, there, there are some really different <laughs> mindsets north versus south of the border. And that goes for most of the other borders as well. The, one of the main reasons for that is in the United States over the past few decades, over the past 40, 50 years or so, increasingly Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, has become associated not only with a single political party, but with the right wing of the single political party. Yeah. yeah. And so there is a lot of anti-intellectualism in public culture in America. A guy won the Pulitzer Prize for writing about it in 1964. So this is nothing new, the idea of, you know, not trusting those pointy-headed, you know, scientists or wonks. But <laughs> it's gotten integrated into Christian circles because we have increasingly been confusing and confounding our political ideology with our faith. Interesting. And that's the reason. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, yes. Wow. So, so I, I really want to follow that line of thought, but before we do that, um, I would like to go back a little bit to your history. So, uh, just out of curiosity, obviously, um, you know, your, your, your father had a great influence on your upbringing and, and, and obviously paved the way for you to, to, to see that, uh, you know, science and faith are not necessarily at odds with one another. Right. So, so specifically, obviously, um, you're known for, for being involved in climate change, um, in fact, you've uh, you've won some awards for that. You've got you know some uh, tons of articles that you've published. Uh, what led you into that specific field? Because if I remember correctly, was your undergraduate degree in a different field of science? Is that correct? Yeah, my undergraduate degree and the first couple of research papers I did were all in astrophysics. Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, which I loved. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I was studying, so I started off studying variable stars, and then um, I worked on a research project looking at the way galaxies cluster around quasars. Oh, wow. I know. Whoa. It was very cool. Um, so that that's what I thought I was going to do with my life. Because again, you know, how much more fun is it than to try to figure out why and how God had created these amazing things, you know, on the other side of the universe, and we can observe them from here on Earth, and not only observe them, but we can actually figure out how they work. I mean, that just blows my mind when I think that we can do that. That blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're just on this little insignificant planet, and we have actually figured out things like how the universe came into being and, um, you know, how all these galaxies developed. Anyway, so, so here I was finishing up my undergrad degree at University of Toronto, and 
the Canadian system is a bit different than the American. You come in to university and you've already got all your prerequisites out of the way. So you immediately start doing whatever it is you want to do. And then by the mm. time you get to the end, when you're in your fourth year, you have a lot of extra time to take extra courses at that point. So I had already taken, you know, children's lit and the Gothic cathedral and a minor in Spanish, <laughs> you know, I'd already done all that. Um, and I, I had another course I needed to take. So I was looking around and over in the geography department, there's this course on climatology. So, you know, from the arrogance of, of a you know, physicist, I thought, well, that's got to be an easy course. Why don't I take that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, and what I didn't realize was that the guy who was teaching the course had just gotten back from the National Center for Atmospheric Research down here in the States. He'd been working with one of the top climate modelers in the world at that time, a guy called Steve Schneider, who just passed away a couple of years ago. And Steve actually became my mentor um, when I went into climate science. And I took this class. And it completely blew me away for two reasons. I, I had always known that climate change is real. I mean, I didn't even know until after I moved to the States that there were people who didn't think it was real. So the whole idea that climate change isn't real is very much an American phenomenon. So it wasn't that I didn't think this was real, but I had always kind of said, well, you know, we have deforestation, we have air pollution, we have climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, you know, like all of these issues. And so climate change is one of these issues. So I took this class and I realized that climate change is not just one of these issues. Climate change is affecting every single one of these issues to the point where we're not going to be able to fix any of them. And not just environmental issues, you know, like deforestation or air pollution. We're not going to be able to fix global hunger and disease and water shortages and poverty we're not going to be able to fix these things if we leave climate change out of the picture, because it's what the the um, the uh, Department of Defense here calls a threat multiplier. It's taking all these issues we already are really worried about, and it's multiplying them. So that was the first thing that surprised me. And then the second thing that completely shocked me was climate modeling is all physics. In fact, a lot of it was the exact same physics that I had already taken in astrophysics. So wow. I know. So here I am accidentally, serendipitously, so to speak. Of course, there's no accidents where God's concerned, but I had all of the skills and ability and knowledge and tools you need to do this work. And it was this incredibly urgent issue and it was affecting people. It's not just about the polar bears. It's about real people. I, I right. thought to myself, how can I not work on this? Wow. Something just ignited in you and you found yourself following the desire, the attraction. You you were lured. Um well I was I was very lured to astrophysics too. Let's not let's not, <laughs> not <laughs> but um when I was you know when I was nine years old we moved down to Columbia in South America. My parents were missionaries there for a number of years and so I, I know what poverty looks like. I mean, I, I know what it feels like to live in a home that's made out of bamboo or cardboard boxes. I had friends wow. who lived that way. I visited them. I stayed at their house. Um, and so I know what that feels like. And so to, to understand that there's this global problem that is already impacting not just people in general, but poor people the most. And you happen to have the ability, the skills to work on that. It's like, it's like being an expert in tropical infectious diseases. And you actually happen to do like a thesis on Ebola. And then all of a sudden Ebola is like sweeping across Africa. It's like, how could you not help? Oh. You're just, you're just, it's not so much that you're um, enamored with helping. It's more like you're compelled. It's like wow. a compulsion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Hey, listen, real quick. Um, I, my guess is just because, you know, I, I like to 
assume that I'm, you know, a reasonably average person in most ways. Um, I, I wasn't very familiar until I really started looking into your work and, and some other things. I'd heard about global warming. We know that, you know, Al Gore did some presentation on it or something like that. Most people listening to this podcast probably have a very limited knowledge of what uh, climate change actually is. I wonder if you could give us a quick overview on on what you mean when you say climate change is an issue and maybe touch on who's primarily responsible for that. Absolutely. No, that's a good thing to do because a lot of times we're like, okay, well, you know, the ozone hole and air pollution and climate change, right. they're all kind of mixed up together. So right. here's the deal with climate change. Our planet has this amazing natural blanket in our atmosphere. This natural blanket is made up of heat trapping gases like carbon dioxide and methane. So the sun shines down on the earth and most of the sun's energy goes right through that natural blanket as if it were a window. It hits the earth, the earth heats up, and then the earth gives off heat energy. If we didn't have that natural blanket that traps the earth's heat energy, just like a blanket traps our body heat on a warm night or on a cold night, if we didn't have that blanket, the earth would be about 60 degrees Fahrenheit colder than it is right now. In other words, it would be a frozen ball of ice. Wow. But because we have that incredible blanket that's part of God's design for our planet, it traps the earth's heat and it keeps us at just the right temperature for life. So that, that's a good thing, you know, and that has nothing to do with us. That's all him, not us. So you might say, well, then what's the problem? The problem is, is that ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've been digging up massive amounts of coal and oil and natural gas and burning them. When we burn all of this stuff, it releases way more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than was ever intended to be there. And so by burning all this stuff, we are essentially wrapping an extra blanket around our planet, a blanket that the planet does not need. And that blanket is trapping too much heat. Now, the temperature of the planet has gone up, but that's not what most of us notice. What most of us notice is that our weather patterns are getting weird. So we're seeing crazy heavy rainfalls up in the northeast. We're seeing incredibly strong heat waves all around the world that are killing hundreds and even thousands of people. We're seeing rising sea levels. We're seeing hurricanes that are turning like from a tropical storm into a category five hurricane overnight because the oceans are warming. We're seeing all this crazy stuff around us. and We're going, okay, something's different. What's going on? It's climate change. Wow. Wow. And I, I think what's interesting is I, I think a lot of people, there's this, this misnomer that uh, climate change is only simply global warming, right? Right. So, but there's also global cooling, as you as you mentioned, involved as well. Well, global warming is is what happens when you wrap this extra blanket around the planet. The planet's temperature goes up, but it goes up. It's gone up about a degree and a half in the last hundred years. And so people say, well, a degree and a half, that's not much. But what they have to realize is the average temperature of the whole planet, it's as stable as the human body. And if oh. our temperature, yeah, if our temperature goes up a degree and a half, we get worried. We're running. A yeah. Low. Yeah. So that's what's happened to the, to the planet. It's running a low grade fever. Interesting. And oh it's, my not, gosh. it's not, it, there's, I mean, it doesn't look like it's going to stabilize. It will only stabilize if we stop producing all of this extra carbon dioxide. So that's why all of the countries in the world, 195 countries went to Paris last December. And they went there because everybody is looking around where they live in their country and they're saying, 
whoa, there is something going on here and it is scary and it's even potentially dangerous. I mean, for, let's take Syria, for example. So Syria was already in a terrible situation. I mean, Syria had decades, you know, even centuries of civil unrest, of corruption, of misallocation of resources, just of terrible situations. So Syria is in this awful situation because of historical and political reasons. And then along comes a killer drought, a drought that's gotten three times more frequent now than it would have been 100 years ago because of this extra blanket we're wrapping around the planet. Wow. That extra drought was part of what pushed Syria over the edge into the state it's in today. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So uh, real quick, I'd just love you to clarify, just so people that are listening to this really, really get this. Who's primarily responsible for this? Yeah, you're not going to let anybody off the hook, are you? <laughs> no, I, I, I really want us to hear it because yeah. I think that's the most, most important thing people can hear on this. It is. So if we look at all of the carbon dioxide and all of the methane and all the heat trapping gases that we've been producing since the Industrial Revolution, and we add up which countries have produced the most, the United States has produced about a third of the whole thing. Wow. And then the rest of the developed countries have produced most of it. Man. Half of the world, the poorest half of the world, has contributed 10% to the problem. Whoa. Man. Yeah. Now, people might say, hang on a second here, because I know that China's building a coal plant a day, and when I go there, you know, the air quality looks terrible, and it does. But what people don't realize is, China is actually closing down their coal plants now. China has more wind and solar energy installed than every other country in the world put together. And Whoa. I know. Who knew that? Nobody knows. <laughs> you did. Yeah. You knew that. <laughs> so the solution, solution is not to like turn off all our lights and you know, go off the grid and return to the Stone Age. The solution is to figure out different ways to get our energy. We can get it from the sun, we can get it from the wind, we can get it from the tides, we can get it from the earth. God's gave us, given us all kinds of ways to get energy that don't wrap this extra blanket around the planet and that don't produce air pollution. Because when we burn coal and when we burn gas and oil, it produces all kinds of nasty pollutants that we breathe in that make us sick. In the United States, air pollution from burning fossil fuels, that's the coal and the gas and the oil, Air pollution from burning fossil fuels alone kills about 200,000 people in the U.S. every year. Wow. I mean, can you imagine if terrorism killed 200,000 people in the U.S. every year? We'd be singing a very different tune. We'd be a little upset about that. Yeah. Yes. yes. Man. So um, one of the things I think that's that's also important to bring up is obviously, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, specifically in the United States, it's become this very political uh, topic. Yeah, um, and it, which is a very interesting thing. You know, so weird. Adam and I have discussed <laughs> this, uh, you know, uh, outside of the podcast, and just you know why it, why it became a political issue. And obviously, there are numerous different theories that we could we could get into, but right. Um, but obviously, uh, as we know, being Americans, the religious right um, 
politically has seemed to kind of grab hold of this topic and and dispute it at all costs. And, um, and, and even so far as hiring their own scientists to come up with contradictory evidence. Um, you know, anything from, you know, climate change models are not reliable. Um, the Arctic ice is actually increasing and all these sorts of things. So as as a respected scientist, you know, what do you say in in regards to kind of those those studies that have been put out there? Well, man, you covered a lot of ground. In that, in that <laughs> one, let, let me back up. <laughs> yeah, just go, just go wherever you want to with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so as my husband said one time, um, my husband, by the way, also being, you know, the tent making kind of pastor that you are, he's a professor at the university and then he also pastors a church. Oh, as awesome. he said to me one time, he said, you know, a thermometer is a Democrat or Republican. So wow. the temperature is telling you is not going to be different depending on how you vote. But you are totally right. When we look at people in the United States today, the number one predictor of what our opinion about climate change will be. And again, climate change is a science. And science doesn't really care what our opinion is. I mean, you can say, I don't believe in gravity, but if you step off the cliff, it doesn't matter. You're going down, you know? <laughs> so you're right. Having an opinion on climate change doesn't really affect whether it's real or not. But right. the number one predictor of people's opinions in the United States about climate change is one single factor, and that is where we fall on the political spectrum. The further to the right we fall, the more likely we are to say it isn't true. Now, <sighs> isn't that crazy? Because, like I just said, you know, the thermometer is a thermometer. So why is it that people are so resistant to the science? <sighs> I will tell you. In at least nine cases out of 10, because I love talking to people and kind of trying to, you know, pull away what I think of as the smoke screen and get to the real reasons. So if you sit down and you have a conversation, a real genuine conversation with somebody who has objections to the science, who's pulling out these fake science studies and saying, oh, but so-and-so said this and such-and-such said that. If you really sit down to them and you dig into the real issue that they have, the real problem that they have. Nine times out of 10, maybe even more, they don't actually have a problem with the science. They have a problem with the solutions because the solutions to them imply big government. And they would rather cut off their arm yeah. than yeah. allow the government to do anything more than it already is. But it's a lot more palatable and a lot more socially acceptable to say, oh, well, you know, the science isn't real. Or those scientists are just making it up or they're just lining their pockets because they couldn't do anything else. It's a lot more politically and socially acceptable to say that than to say, oh, sure, it's a real problem, but I don't want to do anything about it. And I will tell you something crazy. So we listen to all of our politicians and our thought leaders, and many of them, especially Republicans, are standing up saying, you know, this isn't a real issue. Behind closed doors, almost every single one of them, not, not every single one, but almost every single one of them will say, and I've heard them say it myself, and I have colleagues who've heard them say it in first person. They will say, sure, it's a real problem. It's an important problem. But I'm not going to say that in public because I can get reelected. Right. Yeah, yep. Yeah, you absolutely. You don't be a politician by being dumb. These guys are super smart. Uh, but they know side their bread is buttered on, and that is cold, and then it's callous, and that's very unchristian, in my opinion. Oh, man. Yeah. Dude. I could not. So here, uh, I just, yeah. I mean, I, I just want to say, yeah, preach it, preach it, girl. Yep. Like, yeah, bring it. Yeah. That, I mean, so spot on. I mean, it's just calling everybody out on the, on you know, the lies that we want to believe. We all tell ourselves lies to, to you know, keep our egos protected and keep our status quo right where it is. And let's just kind of cut to the chase here. Like how 
bad could this get and how soon? Well, it's not too late. Let's start with the good news. <laughs> okay. It, it's not too late. Uh, we, for some people it is, and that's the sad thing. That's what really breaks my heart. I mean, in the United States, this year, we already have the first climate refugees. It is a native tribe down in Louisiana who's lived on a barrier island. And they have been flooded so frequently because not only is sea level rising there, but the ground is sinking because of all the oil and gas that's been taken out of the underground reservoirs. Wow. Whoa. So they have had to abandon their land. And there are more towns up in Alaska, also Native Americans, who are going to have to abandon their land too because what used to be permanently frozen ground up there in Alaska is now melting and crumbling and falling into the ocean, taking their homes and their buildings with it. So for some people, it is too late, but it's not too late for the majority of us. What do we have to do? We have to wean ourselves off these old, dirty ways of getting our energy. And more good news is the fact that we're already walking down that path. In fact, I would say we're already even sort of running down that path. I mean, here in Texas, on average, we already get like 10% of our energy from wind already. On a really windy day, we get up to 50% of our energy from wind. And this is Texas, okay? I mean, this is like the oil capital of America. Yeah. Um, in, in Texas, Fort Hood, which is the biggest army base in the United States, Fort Hood just bought their new energy contract and they made it all solar and wind because it was the cheapest way to go. They saved $165 million. Wow. So Man. we're doing it. But the thing is, is if we had, you know, all the wind and all the solar and all the amazing things that are happening right now here in Texas, here in the United States, over in China, if all of this were happening and it were like 30 years ago or 40 yeah. years ago, we'd be in a great spot. I'd be like, hey, we're going to be good. No problem. We're moving in the right direction at the right speed. But we've had 50 years. This is going to be crazy, okay? It is last October was the 50th anniversary of the first time that U.S. scientists formally warned a president of the dangers of climate change. Wow. 50 years. Man. So we, we have been sitting on our hands for 50 years, and that's why we have a problem right now is because we haven't fixed it. It's as if you went to the doctor. Like, imagine you went to the doctor like 30 years ago. The doctor's like, your lifestyle is not very healthy. Look at how what you're eating. Look at how you're not exercising. You need to, you know, pull up your socks. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And then you come back 30 years later, and you're like, Doctor, I think I have some serious heart problems. And the doctor's like, uh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. As somebody that works very close to healthcare, that happens all day, every day. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's things like that that, that, uh, that give me hope anyway. Uh, yeah, when yeah. I was reading up on, on uh, some of the research out there and some of the, the, the responses to it, mm. one of the things I read about that just... Uh, blew me away i'd never heard of such a thing but it's this idea of the no regrets policy this idea that it's just it's too expensive uh to take on this problem and uh, to come up with solutions and and it's too late so let's just not do anything oh gosh that is like the lamest thing that's kind of like in thessalonians you know where people are like well, you know, Christ is returning soon, so I'm just going to quit my job and sit around. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Paul Paul laid that one out. Yeah, he, he was very clear on what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to work with our hands and support our family and care for widows and orphans. And there's a lot for us to do. And so that, again, again, is a very unchristian attitude. Fatalism is not a Christian attitude. 
the idea of hope and love and the fruit of the spirit. I mean, oh, there's yes. you know, there's no despair, there's no hate, there's no ugliness, there's no fear in the fruit of the spirit. That's not who we're called to be. Oh man, that is so good. That is strong. I love how practical and concrete that is. So much so much of the time when people talk about theology or they talk about scripture, it's these just, you know, these ideas like predestination or rapture or, you know, are you pre, pre-trib or post-trib, you know, millennial, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but like everything you're saying is so grounded here and now. And I, man, I'm just really enjoying this a lot. Um, my question for you is Walt Brueggemann's got a phrase about um, how to define uh, being a prophet. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Um, Walt Brueggemann's a great uh, commentator, thinker, theologian. Um, He's just wonderful. I encourage you to check him out. But he talks about a prophet being somebody who speaks truth to power. Speaking Mm -hmm. truth to power. Now, it seems to me from what I've read about your career and what you do that you, you have a very unique mission because it seems to me that you're speaking truth to power in two different directions. Um, on one hand, you're speaking truth to power towards government. But on the other hand, you're speaking truth to power towards evangelicals who are having a lot of trouble getting on board with this just statistically. And I know we've made strides, but yeah. st- statistically, um, do you see yourself as a prophet? And you know, if so, how do you go about Kind of maybe you've never looked at it that way, but I think you'll maybe pick up what I'm saying. How do you go about turning and facing the government and saying these things, and at the same time turning and facing um, a, a group like evangelicals who you yourself associate with? That that seems like quite a daunting task. It is, and I have to tell you, there's a lot of prayer um, that goes into it and that stands behind me, and I feel the power of that prayer every day. Oh, that's um, great. No, you you hit the nail on the head. Um, a number of years ago, I did this really fun thing called The Secret Life of Scientists. Um, if you haven't seen it, you have to look it up. It's this little online PBS show where <laughs> they find out the kind of these secrets that scientists have, and they show you, you know, the secret life of what scientists do when they go home and they turn off the computer. So they, they were interviewing me, and they were, you know, looking to see what my secret was. And, you know, one person's secret was they were a juggler, and another person's secret was they used to be a beauty queen. And so my secret, I was like, okay, well, you know, here's the types of things I do, and I was expecting them to say, you know, wake surfing or something like that is your secret. And then when I started telling them about how I talk to people about climate change, they're like, we know what your secret is. You're a climate change evangelist. Uh. So, <laughs> like, I had this immediate gut reaction thinking that is not it because um, evangelism is preaching the good news and I'm not preaching the good news. And so from that, I started to realize, okay, if I'm not preaching the good news, what am I doing? I'm the Jeremiah of today. (laughs) I feel like one of those Old Testament prophets who just go on and on and everybody's sick of listening to them. And they're just telling people all the bad things that are going to happen if they don't turn from their wicked ways. And they eventually die some sad and lonely death off in the middle of nowhere, but their names are remembered. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You don't don't sound like the weeping prophet at all. So optimism has to keep me going. That's the only way I can do this. Oh, absolutely. So a little sub-question to the question I just asked you about uh, speaking truth to power. Um, and it seems like, you know, obviously we know what side of the political realm is on board with this and which side is kind of having a little bit of trouble. Specific to evangelicals, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast right now either identify as evangelical or formally identify as evangelical or are heavily influenced by evangelicalism. Why, why are evangelicals having such a hard time getting on board with this? It, you, you'd mentioned is it, it's politics, but what, it can't just be, is it that simple? Like, why are, why are they having so much trouble? Well, first of all, there's a strong age gradient. 
So the younger we are, the more likely we are to be just fine with the idea that climate is changing. And the older we are, we are the less likely we are. Also, again, it's really a U.S. thing. I mean, when I went to Paris, I went there and I met the head of the World Evangelical Association, the Secretary General of all evangelicals in the world, all 600 million of us. He is so committed to climate change that he was a member of the Philippine delegation. Wow. Interesting. I went to conferences and meetings in Paris with all kinds of evangelicals from Africa, from Europe, from Canada, from all over the world, even from the United States. So the whole evangelical climate change thing is quite unique. It's not entirely unique, but it's quite unique to the United States. And when you turn to the social science, and I love reading social science because that's the kind of the area of science that takes the top off our brain and looks inside and tries to figure mm. out what is going on inside our brains. Absolutely. So, when you turn to the social science, and one of my colleagues, a guy called John Evans from um, San Diego, he did this. He said, I'm going to look at evangelicals because I know that there's this huge bias where most you know, evangelicals will say this isn't a real thing. He said, obviously, there's a correlation. So there's a correlation between saying it isn't true and being an evangelical. But what he said is, is there causation? So is being evangelical what makes you say it isn't true? Interesting. And he found that it is not he found that, what we said before, the number one predictor of what we think about climate change is where we fall in the political spectrum. And that is modified by three things. It's modified, number one, by how old we are. Number one, by what gender we are. Mm. Men are more likely to say it isn't real than women. And very sadly, number three, it's modified by what race we are. Mm. And you see this when you look at Catholics. If you look at Catholics and you ask them, how concerned are you about climate change and do you think it's a real problem or not? Catholics are kind of, you know, middle of the pack. But if you divide Catholics into Hispanic Catholics versus white Catholics, the white Catholics track exactly with white evangelicals. I believe and the, it. the Hispanic Catholics are the most concerned people in the entire United States about climate change. But you might say, well, they both got the same pope. What's going on? It's not the Pope. It's not what we believe. It's the fact that if you look at the Tea Party in the United States, something like 40-something percent of the Tea Party is evangelical. Yeah. Evangelicals have been hijacked by the political right. Totally somehow, agree. Yeah, our doctrinal statements have been somehow rewritten with hate the poor, leave the, you know, leave the disenfranchised out of the country, <laughs> marginalize anybody who doesn't look like us, and definitely don't love because that would be weak. I mean, where is any of that written in the Bible? Bring it. Yep. <laughs> get up. Get up sometimes. I get up sometimes. And then go down sometimes. And go down sometimes again. Get up sometimes. I get up sometimes. And then go down sometimes. And go down sometimes. I think that's why so many people, I mean, why our podcast even exists, I think is because people are just fed up with the hypocrisy, the religiosity, the talking out of both sides of your mouth, saying that you care when you obviously don't. <laughs> um, and it causes people to fracture and it causes people to leave. And man, that's why we were so excited to get you on here. And you, you just, you act in so many ways as just such a bridge and uh, we need more of them. So uh, if I could ask you a personal question, you know, kind of getting a little bit away from um, getting into the weeds on uh, the 
climate change and things like that, as interesting as it is, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about all this education that you've had. Obviously, you were, you were raised in a Christian home. Um, you know, so it, it was a harmonious thing for you, science and religion, but out in the world, it's not. The general opinion, the general perception is that most scientists are materialists or don't have any religious faith. And here you are going through all this university training, all this academia, all this exploring the ends of the galaxies and black holes and climate change and all this kind of stuff. All of that learning a lot of times creates, you know, fractures in worldviews, unlearning, seasons of doubt, struggling. Um, did that? Did any of that ever hit you? Did you have any seasons where you were just like not not believing, but really kind of struggling to find a new footing, new language, new expression? Whenever you're learning new stuff, you always run into those situations where you run into some piece of information that just does not fit within your preconceived view. And as a scientist, that's part of our training whether we're Christians or not, is when we run into a new piece of information, not to reject it. Wow. But, but to turn it around, try to look at it from all sides, to try to figure out, is it real or is it not? And if it really is real, then we're forced to try to reconsider what we think might be true. So I'm really fortunate, I feel like, in that I've never run into anything that ever, um, ever led me to question the existence of God. I mean, if I'm going to be totally honest and totally brutal, yeah. the only thing that's really led me to question the reality of God and the, God's presence in our lives is um, the hate I've gotten from other Christians. Oh, wow. I mean, sometimes I just have to, you know, cry out to God and say, God, if you're really there, how can you let your children act like this? Like, where is the lightning bolt from heaven? Where is the bear that ate the children that we're making fun of the life? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the only thing that's caused me to pause and doubt God's goodness. But science has just been amazing. I mean, when you study the beginning of the universe, when you study the fact that every single thing that we see today, every piece of matter and energy came from one single point, that implies that point had to be created. Because um, cosmologists who aren't Christians, and there are many of them too, are tying themselves into knots trying to figure out what came before the beginning of the universe because it so bluntly and so boldly implies a creator. Um, so along that note, wow. I can tell you exactly who you have to have on your program next. And yeah, <laughs> that's one of my right. favorite people. Um, Elaine Eklund. Elaine is, she's a Christian too. She is a sociologist, so she studies people. And way back when, when she was in Chicago, she was going to her Presbyterian church up in Wheaton and, you know, that time when they, you know, you shake hands with the people around you. So she was just shaking hands and chatting with the lady in the pew in front of her. And somehow the conversation came around to science. The lady said to Elaine, she said, well, you know, none of those scientists are Christians. Ooh. And Elaine thought to herself, hmm, we always hear that. But is that really true? So Helene, Elaine has dedicated her career, probably 15 years of it so far now, to surveying and talking with research scientists, kind of lay scientists like health professionals and engineers, documenting all of our attitudes and perceptions towards God and spirituality. And what Elaine has found is completely the opposite of what people believe to be true. But the majority of scientists do consider themselves to be spiritual people. They do believe in a higher power. Many more of us are Christians than you think, but a lot of us are not evangelical. And the reason why many scientists cite for the reason why they're not evangelical, the reason why they go to a mainline church, you know, like, um, you know, a Presbyterian or Anglican or Episcopal. The, the sad reason most scientists cite is the fact that they don't feel welcome in evangelical churches. Whoa. Oh my gosh. That's, that is incredible. And you actually uh, partly <laughs> answered my next question. So Hang thank you. On. Um, 
what I was going to ask is, is, is obviously you kind of, you know, have this balancing act between being a scientist and, and being a person of faith. And, and you've, you've kind of mentioned already that you've, you've taken some criticism from, from the, the religious side. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, how has that affected you on your professional side, um, you know, in, in the world of science? Well, that's a good question. Um, so my husband's a pastor, so I'm a pastor's wife too. <laughs> oh, wow. But when you're a scientist, a lot of us scientists are very, you know, introverted. We don't, you know, our chit chat around the water cooler, so to speak, is still about the science. Like that's what we actually <laughs> enjoy talking about, you know. So scientists don't really talk about their personal lives very much. So most of my colleagues, you know, going back a few years, most of my colleagues had no idea, you know, where I sat my bum on a Sunday if I did, other than bed. Sure. Um, and I didn't know what they did either, but. What happened was um, when we moved to Texas and my husband started pastoring this church, he started getting all of these questions about climate change because the people in the church started to figure out who I was and what I did. And then, you know, being very polite, they didn't want to like just go up to the pastor's wife and being like, you're not even a Christian. What are you doing here in this church believing in Al Gore's religion? <laughs> you know, so they didn't want to do that. So they decided they would go to the pastor and, and ask him. So he started coming home with all these questions. And I was like, well, those are good questions. Let's find the answers. And so we'd, you know, find some answers and he'd take them back and then more questions. And then people would be like, well, is there a resource that, that you can point us to? And at that time, this was probably about, um, you know, almost 10 years ago, there wasn't really a great resource for people starting at the point where they were at. I mean, there's there's books written about Christianity and ecology and the environment and all that that are great books, but if you think the whole thing's a hoax, you're not going to pick up one of those books. Right. So, um, you know, talking it over, finally we're like, well, maybe we should write a book together about this. You know, I'll write the science. And then my, my husband, he outlined the book because he's like, okay, here's the stuff we have to talk about. And then some of the times I was like, are you serious? We have to talk about that. And he's like, yes, we do have to talk about that because that's what people are asking. So writing this book, I have to confess, I was scared. And the number one thing I was scared of was that I was essentially coming out of the closet, not as a Christian, but as an evangelical to Ooh. my beliefs. Yes. I was petrified that I was essentially going to be flushing my scientific career down the toilet. Oh because, my gosh. Interesting. I, I bought the myth that Elaine is studying that scientists aren't Christians too. Wow. Oh my gosh. Catherine. Wow. And so, and so has, has that affected you once you kind of, as you say, came out as, as an evangelical, did that have any negative effect on your career? <laughs> I can tell you what happened. <laughs> exactly what happened. So I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how this was going to go down. So the book comes in and I keep on doing my thing. It's not like I walk around with like posters of the book taped to my back or anything like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I, I'm at my, I'm at my scientific meetings. I'm at my conferences. I'm, you know, on my phone calls doing my research. And so I'm at a meeting, I'm at the coffee table and one of my colleagues comes up, somebody who I've known, you know, casually for a couple of years, even maybe even 10 years, they kind of sidle up to me sideways and they say, we read your book at church. And I say, oh, you go to church? And they say, yes, that was a great book. It was perfect. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. I know. And then, um, then I'll be on a phone call with somebody who wants the climate data I provide. And so we go through this whole you know, phone call talking about the data. And then rather than saying goodbye, there's this pause. And then they're like, so... I heard you wrote this book. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you want a copy? <laughs> oh, you're giving people permission. So 
have a list now of colleagues in my field. I, I don't even know how long the list is. I'm feeling like I should make like a website of us all with pictures and what church we go to and what we do. <laughs> yes. There, there are scientists who are very senior scientists. Like the guy who heads the paleoclimate program. Paleoclimate is the study of ancient climates. So it uses data going back hundreds, thousands, even millions of years to study what climate used to look like in the past. That dude is a Christian. Who knew wow. that? Wow. Wow. Nobody knew that until he pulled me aside and had lunch with me at a conference, and that's what he wanted to tell me. So I just Man. had these conversations. And sure, I've gotten some nasty notes, and sure, I've gotten a few people saying things behind my back. But if I had to guess the ratio of colleagues who have been incredibly supportive and encouraging, even when they come up to me, for example, and they say, you know, I don't believe what you believe, but I support what you're doing. So I would say it's about a thousand to one. Wow. That's Man. incredible. That well, yeah. is so incredible. Uh, before we, I mean, as as we're winding down here, before we before we get into the last couple of questions that we have for you, to kind of circle back around again, what what can people do? What can the average person do to help, kind of, uh, you know, contribute to fixing the problem of of climate change? Yeah. Oh, I have the perfect answer. <laughs> we Excellent. thought you might. We really did. We thought you <laughs> yes. might. So. <laughs> The problem we always have, each of us, is we're like, well, this is this huge global problem, and I'm one person, and I'm sitting there, you know, in Ohio or West Texas or wherever I am. You know, what can I do? I change a light bulb. Who cares? Right. So that's why I am so excited about this awesome organization called Climate Caretakers. They have a website and a Facebook page. Um, they were invented by this awesome guy called Brian Webb, who works at Houghton College in upstate New York, a little West End college there. And what Climate Caretakers is, is it is an online community of Christians who are committed to working together to do what we can on climate change. So every month, Climate Caretakers sends you an email and they say, okay, our action this month is X. And if this many of us do it, this is going to be the cumulative result of our actions. So, you know, little things add up. Like if each house in the U.S., so not each person, but if just each house replaced one light bulb with a new LED that you can get, you know, at Walmart for three bucks now. That would be like taking almost a million cars off the road in terms of all the extra carbon dioxide we'd save. What? Oh my gosh. I know. It's crazy. Um, just silly things like turning off our computers at night, um, eating red meat one day less a week, um, writing a letter to our elected officials. Every time you write a letter, they think a letter counts for like, you know, depending on your district, between 100 to 1,000 people. Write them a letter saying, hey, this is who I am. This is what I appreciate about you. And this is what I care about. Please, you know, please consider climate change when you vote. Wow. Wow. Uh, so, so climate caretakers helps us. So that is the number one thing people can do is go to climate caretakers, sign up, and you will get all the ideas, all the support, and all the community that we need to make a difference. Because as Christians, we're built to work in community. That's who we are. We need to be in community. And today, thanks to the internet, we can have this amazing community of Christians who are worried about climate and who want to fix it. Man, that's awesome. Uh, it's just a shame that the uh, evangelicals are bringing up the rear on this, but you're working hard to change that, and that is awesome. Hey, Climate Caretakers isn't bringing up the rear either. I mean, I, I feel like, 
yeah, if you look at the whole population in the United States, maybe so. But evangelicals who get it, like the National Association of Evangelicals, the National Association of Evangelicals gets it. They are leading on this. And the World Association is certainly leading on this. And, mm. you know, people like climate caretakers and amazing evangelicals around the country, they are leading on this. So we have evangelicals out at the forefront and we have evangelicals dragging their tails at the rear. And <laughs> what I would love is for us all to just take another look at the Bible. Like, don't take anybody's word for it. Just read the Bible, get into the word and pray and prayerfully consider what should my attitudes and actions be towards others who are not as fortunate as I am. Man, if we could all just do that. I don't think anybody would have a problem with Christians if that's really what we were known for. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely what, uh, what Jesus was all about. Well, one of the questions we love to end on that, uh, We've been talking around sort of this whole episode, so I'm excited to just kind of put it to you bluntly. It's it's um, something we end basically every guest on, and you've got a particular skill set and a particular perspective that'll make it uh, a unique answer. Uh, what would you like to say to two different sides? You know, there's we we always picture there's two different sides listening to this podcast. There's the the sort of fundamentalist. Um, that's maybe waking up to the fact that life's a little bit more complex and there's a whole lot more. And then we've got the more materialist side that's spiritually curious. So if, if both of those sides are listening to this right now, speak to those Christians who kind of put their head in the sand and, and sort of deny science, and then speak to the materialists who kind of put their heads in the sand and deny a lot of evidence for the divine. Sure. Well, for the first group, and really to any of us who are Christians, I would go to my favorite verse, which is in Second Timothy, and that is, the verse that talks about how God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has given us a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a sound mind. What would it look like if we let go of our fears? Because at the very bottom of it, just about all of this resistance is fear, whether it's fear of loss of control, whether it's fear of not having things the way I wanted them to be, whether it's the fear of the unknown or the unfamiliar, whether it's fear of government or the United Nations, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, it is fear at the bottom. And if it is fear, that fear is not from God. If we believe in a sovereign God, what do we have to fear? We believe this life is temporary. We believe that we're put here to love others. So let's start acting like who we are and let the chips fall where they may. That's what I would say. Man, that's good. And, and what about to those who um, maybe look at science and kind of hide behind it and say, so, well, science, you know, makes it very clear that the divine is, it's not possible. It's, it's not there. That doesn't exist. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I would say, say for those uh, is that science is not a religion. Now, I know that some have made it into a religion, but in its, at its core, at its essence, using the Google definition, science is the same definition that we get from the Bible. So in Hebrews 11, there's a definition of faith. And in that chapter, there's actually, I believe, the anti-definition of science. Faith is the evidence of what we do not see. Science is the evidence of what we do see. And Google gives us those same definitions. Faith is based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. And science is based on a study of the natural world through experimentation and observation. They are not two opposite systems of belief, and they're not in competition with each other. When it comes to the issue of climate change, science can tell us a lot. Science can tell us that climate is changing. There's not just 
thermometer records and satellite records, there's 26 and a half thousand indicators in God's creation, rising sea level, melting glaciers, birds moving north, peach trees flowering earlier in the backyard. There's thousands of lines of evidence that climate is changing. We've been studying why it's changing for 200 years. And we know that if it were natural cycles, we'd be getting cooler right now and we're not, we're warming. And then science can also tell us if we continue on our current pathway, what our future will look like. But if we choose a different pathway, a safer and more secure and smarter pathway, then science can also tell us what that will look like. But science can't tell us what to do. Science is like a compass. It can tell us which way is north and south and east and west, but which way is the right way to go. That doesn't come from our heads. That comes from our hearts. And that, that's wow. what our faith gives us. And the Christian faith gives us that heart compass to tell us the right way to go, the right direction to move in is away from fear and towards love. Beautiful. Well, I, I, I don't think we could end on any better note. So before we let you go. Drop um, the mic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can, you can drop the uh, virtual mic. Um, <laughs> uh, tell people, where, where can they go to, to find your book? You've, you mentioned that you've got this book out, uh, A Climate for Change, Global Warming Facts for Faith-Based Decisions. Uh, where can people go to find that book? And also, what's the best way for people to stay on top of what you're currently up to? Thank you for asking. That's an awesome question. So I am on Facebook. It's just my name, Catherine Hayhoe, with two A's. And I'm on Twitter, too. I have a website, which is just my name again, Catherine Hayhoe, where I have a lot of the videos I've done. Um, we have videos from the 700 Club, from 100 Huntley Street in Canada, from all kinds of different things. And my husband and I are just working on the second edition of our book. So if you go to Amazon, it's you know there's some old copies there for astronomical prices. Please do not buy those. Just wait. Just wait <laughs> another couple of months. This summer, our plan is to have the book out, and we're excited about that. You can find it on Amazon and hopefully in some bookstores too. Oh man, that is wonderful. This time with you has just been so life-giving. Your energy, your positivity. Um, I wonder if you'd also be an Enneagram 7. I don't know if you've ever done the Enneagram, but you are just a blast. You're so optimistic and enthusiastic and it's infectious. So I hope that came through. I'm sure it did for our listeners. And uh, I hope that um, we can do this again down the road. There's always more to talk about. There's always more perspective to, to open people's eyes to. And you have a gift in doing that. And we appreciate you immensely. Uh, well, same to you. Thank you so much. This is very fun. All right, Catherine. Well, again, thank you. And uh, we'll look forward to doing it again sometime. Sounds good. What do you do with the broken heart? Where do you go when it all falls apart? World upside down. You don't know where you are. Adam? <laughs> <laughs> I, that was that was everything that I hoped it would be and more. Yeah, I, <laughs> it, just so much to say. I know, and people are always like, "Are you ever going to have a guest on that doesn't blow your mind?" And I say, "No." Why would we do that? If we did, we wouldn't air it, right? Because it would be boring, and <laughs> no one would want to hear it. And so we, I mean, people don't know, it, and and you know, this is something we've mentioned before, but people have no idea. Um, you know, what work we're doing behind the scenes in regards to, you know, what guests we're getting and how to curate these releases. Yeah, like when we put them out and obviously, you know, we've we've taken some of the, the feedback, you know, we're trying to get more female voices and, and, 
and and people of different backgrounds and we're definitely feverishly working on that but um one of the guests that that you know i I would say that we've been trying to get for a long time has been uh, first of all a science uh expert you know a scientist of some kind on the show yeah and we got not only a scientist but a female voice all wrapped into one and uh, a powerhouse and a sweetheart yeah i mean so nice just so bubbly and fun and like yeah breaking all of those like normal stereotypes that you would think of scientists that you would think of that community that you would think of christian that you would think of just i mean she's she was iconoclastic yeah whoa paradigm busting yeah and and you know if i could drop a little hint she will not be the last scientist we have on this summer we may have made some connections yeah well, even beyond that, we've got a couple already on the calendar. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. For, oh, my gosh. I love our job. We're going to be... Quote, unquote, our job. We're going to be dipping into some different uh, different fields within science. Uh, we've got more musicians coming up, and mm. we've also got um, some, some other unique kind of one-off episodes that I'm really excited about. It's going to be a fun summer. And, Dude, you guys and, are going to love it. And fall. And just wait until October. Oh, man. Oh, they don't even know what's coming in October. I got the graphic done for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> we will never release that picture. No, no, no. So this episode, though, I mean, I really felt like we were truly speaking to somebody who is a prophet. I mean, to use that Brueggemann phrase again, speaking truth to power. Yeah. I mean, power runs the world. And, you know, to borrow the Al Gore, now famous PowerPoint presentation <laughs> name, the inconvenient truth, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, a lot of what she's saying is not getting traction in America. And she was almost more uh, cutting about what she said about like America yeah. and even what she said about evangelical Christians and, and their reticence and reluctance to come on board. She's like, this is just an American problem, guys. And you know why? Honestly, if I'm going to read between the lines, we love driving our Escalades. Yeah. And we love eating what we want when we, I mean, we are drunk on freedom at the expense of others and at the expense of the world. Yeah. And that's just the bottom line. Dude, I've been, I've been screaming for a high-speed train forever. I, I would love that. <laughs> I really would. We could podcast on the train. I know. That would be amazing. From here to Chicago in like yes. three hours. That would be great. Get a list of people and just get them on the train. <laughs> yeah. Pod, we can have a train. miles an hour. Have a train podcast. Oh, the first of its kind. But man, her answers were informed and fair and fun and easy to understand. And I hope that those of you that are listening to this right now, I hope that, goodness, man, I just, I hope something changes in you. I hope that whatever the case may be, that you don't walk away from an episode like this. A lot of our episodes, every hopefully every episode we do changes you in some way. You, you can implement some kind of a change. Maybe it's get into a community. Maybe it's you know, forgive somebody. Maybe it's forgive yourself. Maybe it's read somebody new for the first time. This is one where you could actually start to change the physical, actual world. Yeah. And and I think my mindset has always been, and I, and I, I really enjoyed this episode for, for this reason, because it kind of confirms some things that I've been thinking over the years in regards to climate change. And that is number one, that you know, scientists are just there to do their jobs, right? right? So they're just there to do the science, to crunch the data, to 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 see where the numbers lead them, and to follow, you know, the results, right? And so we need to stop politicizing that. 
uh, it's not a political issue. It's it's a science issue. It's a humanity issue, uh, number one. And the, the second thing I always think is, hey, like if there's even a fraction of a chance this could be true, mm. why would we not take action seriously, to, man, to prevent that from happening? If there's even a chance, uh, yes, I'm a parent now, and I'm I'm, I'm a lot more conscious of like the world I'm going to leave my daughter, you know, mm. and. You know, I don't. I don't want to be a despicable human being and absolutely just wreck this place before I hand it over to her. No, I'm with you, man. I like the way you said that. If there's even a chance, like let's let's wake up and realize that we are here. This is a gift. No matter where you think it came from, it doesn't matter. If you're breathing in and out, if you have breath in your lungs, if you have volition and will and ability and agency in this world, that is a massive responsibility. And you need to do something with it that's not selfish and start to change some things. You know, I don't, I don't like to give personal anecdotes, but um, my wife and I have made several changes this year. Not massive ones, small ones. Like she said, we replaced, you know, and we got the LED bulbs this year. I changed my consuming habits this year because I realized that the fashion industry is one of the greatest contributors to pollution and and uh, social injustice, child child slavery, and things like that. These issues are all tied together. They are ethical issues. And it, do something different, guys. Do yeah. some do something different. So, man, I'm amped. That was so good. I have to go to bed now, but I'm so amped. <laughs> oh, I was don't. So good. <laughs> no. Definitely going to be having her back. Definitely yeah. going to be having her back. Well, if you guys enjoyed this. First thing that we would ask you to do is continue to help support John and I and our <laughs> our lack of income in doing this podcast. If you're connecting with this at all, there's a link in the show notes. You can click it. It takes you to a little Squarespace store. Modest donations, $5, 10 $25. We are going to be setting up a Patreon for some other projects that uh, you'll be hearing more and more about as the summer unfolds. Like us on Twitter. Uh, or like us on Twitter, follow us on Twitter, <laughs> share us on Twitter. Yeah, get, get this out there, guys. The more people that uh, we change the world, the more we all hear new perspectives and learn how to do this uh, without being angry, but being open-minded, graceful, humble. We can struggle, we can doubt, we can wrestle together. Yeah, I mean, follow us on all the social media. Uh, we like to put up uh, daily quotes, inspirational quotes on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. Um, go to our website, www thedeconstructionist.com and uh, yeah, follow us there and, and for those of you that came out to uh, Pete Ron's event in Grand Rapids this last, uh, well I guess it'll be a couple weeks ago oh, now yeah, when this goes up but um, thank you guys for coming out. It was really cool uh, to see the support for Peter Ons in, in in Grand Rapids, and even cooler for us to meet some of some of you guys who who follow our show. So what a blast! We love each and every one of you so much. We count this as just a tremendous gift that we get to do this. Um, keep encouraging us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we love it so much, but we'll take all the encouragement we can get, uh, however that looks for you. So with that. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, give Catherine a shout out on uh, social media. Buy her book. Visit her website. Get going on that. You can find all that stuff in the show notes and more. Um, with that, we are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everyone. Confined by my own design To find things I could not change But how
time Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.